On Message is a podcast from MHP Communications. Hello and welcome to this edition of On Message, the podcast where we aim to look at current issues from a communications perspective. I'm Adam Batstone, a director with MHP, and today we're going to talk about higher education and some of the big challenges which colleges and universities are facing. I'm very pleased to be joined by some genuine experts on this subject. Sean Coughlin is a BBC News education correspondent who's been covering the sector for many, many years. We're also joined by Zina Elmaruki, who's Head of Communications at the Russell Group, which represents 24 leading UK universities. And lastly, my MHP colleague, Nicole Martin, is also here. Nicole specialises in giving communications advice to clients in the education sector. Welcome to you all. Sean, if I can start with you, do you think the media has got the knives out for higher education? And if so, why is that? I don't think they've got the knives out, but I think that there is a great deal of attention paid to universities, driven by a couple of factors. More people go than ever before, and they pay much more than they used to. Universities used to exist in quite a comfortable, closed space. Few people went, and they didn't pay much to be there. Uh, And I think it was a much nicer world for universities. It was much more of a cottage industry. Now it has been, to some extent, uh, opened up, and I think there's a sort of awkwardness about that opening up process. I think there are areas of university life which have been controversial. And I think the media has focused on things like vice-chancellor's pay, uh, university admissions, value for money. And I think all of those are quite difficult for institutions. And I think the media reflects public interest. uh, And I think people do look at their children's education or or possibly their own and say, this costs a lot of money. This costs 90, 50 a year. What are we going to get for it? And I think that sort of scrutiny possibly can feel negative if you're on the receiving end of it, but I think it's not going to go away. Uh, and the question is, how, how do you adjust and how do you respond to it? Zena, from your point of view, admittedly recently into this job with the Russell Group, yep. with a background in sort of education policy, does it feel that you're under the kind of scrutiny that Sean describes? Does, does it feel unfair at all? Oh, I don't think I'd use the word unfair. It definitely feels like the light is shining on universities. And I think most people would say they recognise that. Um, I think it's like Sean says. Uh, so before I was doing this, I was working for Nick Clegg as one of the advisors in coalition government. And that coalition government increased fees to over £9,000 a year. And I think since then, what's been happening is universities now occupy this quite hybrid space in our society. Are they businesses? Are they not businesses? Are they public? Are they private? Are students customers? Or are they students in the way we understand? And so while all that is being worked out, there's actually some big questions going on that need to be settled I don't want to get too theoretical, but it's a kind of renewing the social contract, really, um, about how they should be funded, how they should be regulated, who should pay for that. And I think that the media attention is a just a natural consequence of that. And actually, until we settle those questions as a society, I don't think that media attention is going to go away. And Nicole, I mean, you formerly worked as a journalist with The Telegraph, now look mm-hmm. at this from a communications perspective. What's your view in, in terms of whether it feels like this has turned into some kind of feeding frenzy. Yeah, well, I spend a lot of time reading papers in the morning um, for all sorts of clients, but my um, with my education hat on. And I've definitely noticed how every day, um, you know, there's several negative stories about universities in the covered by the media. And I understand why, because as a former journalist, these are the kind of the sexy stories that news editors are after. But then with my PR hat on, I find 
I think it's very difficult for universities and other educational institutions to get their positive stories across because they're being uh, drowned out by negative headlines. And that's the re- that's the challenge. You know, what can universities do to promote these stories? Because I think media offices up and down the country are pushing these stories, but journalists aren't covering them. I don't know, Sean, do you get in, is your inbox full of press releases from universities promoting the wonderful research they're doing? And do you delete them straight away or no i I think curiously we don't get enough actually i I think the universities themselves have been quite poor at communicating that they have in terms of research phenomenal stories to tell uh, and our stories about research do very very well it's a big appetite for them i think universities are not that good at news i don't think to be brutally honest i think that they are institutions that have always assumed themselves to be good things and they thought we are good people we do good things and so our good works will speak for us and i think what's complicated matters is the research still is great it's a fantastic export business universities are one of the sort of the you know the jewels in the crown for for, you could say for, for the country but i think they haven't ever grasped that awkward thing about cost and value and what they're for and I think it's like a real sort of fishbone in their throat. and They've never managed to clear out. And it goes back to that figure of 9,000, which became a, a sort of point of reference for all university stories after that point. Now it's 9,250. But it has become something that's so totemic and symbolic. If you talk about university chances, vice chances being paid a certain amount of money, people say that is worth so many thousands of students' years and their mums and dads think, you know, my kids aren't going to get in debt so you can drive around in a big car. And it's a very deeply felt thing. And I think universities haven't been complacent, but I don't think they've actually picked up on the irritation they cause. And they hide behind committees and chairs and this, and they they don't communicate very well, I think. It's one of the problems that universities are a bit too cautious. So I worked with the Committee of University Chairs on the new remuneration code. And one of the criticisms is that university vice chancellors earn so much more than the prime minister and it's a disgrace. Whereas in fact, the job of a vice chancellor is huge. And we were encouraging the CUC to come out and and say that and don't be embarrassed by it because obviously there's some outliers. The Bath University is a case in point. Clearly she was paid too much. But is it such a disgrace that a, a university vice chancellor, who's the head of a huge organisation, very complex organisation, is earning two hundred thousand pounds? Maybe not. You know, we've got some of the best universities in the country. We've got world class research. They contribute huge amounts to the UK economy. Um, the head should be paid too much, and I think sometimes universities are too shy in in defending their position. Just before Sean answers that, Zena, from your point of view, with the Russell Group. What is your sense of the mood among, you know, the vice chancellors, the people who are in the headlights on this particular issue? Are they frustrated by the sort of uh, the narrative which has come up? Well, it's definitely been uncomfortable. You know, I think the whole sector has found that. I think most people think it's a shame that it's been so distracting, actually, from a lot of the other stuff going going on. And it is, it's such a lightning rod for people's emotions. And it's just, and you know, from a media point of view, it's just a cracking story. You just can't, can't deny it. And I think it's not going to go away. And as Sean said, whatever 
numbers ever come up in a story about anything to do with universities, they instantly get compared to the £9,000. I think there's just a need to be more assertive in the sector. Um, I'm still trying to get my head around exactly why that isn't like that. I think it's a kind of long-standing cultural thing. Universities need to understand that other people aren't going to make our arguments for us, and especially in a kind of highly polarised political environment. And I think universities just need to be out there on the front foot explaining what they're doing. And also, I think it's about how we talk about what we're doing. The sector is being defined by its issues. That happens a lot, but that's happening very much in HE, uh, higher education. And it's also, there isn't an automatic kind of impulse that kicks in that when people are talking they talk about their mission and values and I find that so strange because I come from politics where you just do that I mean maybe maybe we didn't all do it very well all the time but you know you automatically know that you're supposed to do that and so I meet these people who work across the Russell group and they are you know from the vice chancellors to the students to the academics they are passionate about what they're doing and completely driven about it and I just I'm still trying to work out why that passion doesn't fully come across why, why doesn't that come across Sean what, what do you think that they should be telling it in a different way to well, make well, I you think, I think it's, it's a really interesting question and I think you know really a question with lots of complicated answers the, 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 <laughs> I think that you know I, I think it's a sort of conflicted thing because as you say the people who might be apparently being negative towards universities probably love universities mm. they probably went to one themselves yeah. they Hold them in high esteem, uh, and often the people who have been, say, very aggravated by vice chancellors' pay are staff of these universities who will be the first to, to let everyone know how cross they are. But they, that's their work; they love it. So it's not they're against the institution; it's against what they would see as the sort of the abuse of the institution. And I think there are, there are sort of factors within that that are overlooked. I mean, the fact that it's not just pay; it's about transparency. How do universities, you know, one you mentioned it could be between 200 or 400,000. That's got a big gap. So why does one university doing quite nicely get 200? Mm. Blow cut the road gets 400. You know, how is that? And then behind that also there is the accelerated inflation in pay, which people then contrasted with the lack of pay rises for staff. So you you have these people who are saying, absolutely, you've got to tighten the belt, no money in, you know, 1% this year for all the staff. Mind you, I fancy 20%. Thank you very much. And that just sets off all the fire alarms in news. You know, you think this, you know, you're asking for it. And the other factor behind that story that, that drove it was that universities themselves were pushing for more money off students. So they would say, oh, the coffers are empty, we've got no money, we can't get by on 9,000, we need 90 or 50. And hold on, you're paying yourself 17% more than last year. You know, So that sort of thing really antagonises people. Poorly thought through, it's going to cause a car crash in media terms. But sometimes I feel that the headline is already written before the details of the story are fully digested so back to the uh, remuneration code that was all about transparency it was all about how universities are going to have to explain why they pay their vice chancellors so much I think it was a very robust code maybe I would say that Um, yes it was voluntary but um, there was consensus for it yet one union came out against it and that dominated every single headline. A week later the Office for Students came out with their guidelines and they, they worked with the CUC on it and it was a more positive story because the union didn't wade in. So I, I just know how the media works, that you only need one person to say one inflammatory comment and suddenly it drowns out all the positive work that universities are no, doing. No, I'd, I'd say it's a misreading. Really? At the risk of having a heated discussion. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I, th- I think that, that um, because I covered that story, there were a number of factors there. I had a conversation with the Vice-Chancellor not that long ago who, who said, your points... It's outrageous we're being blamed for this because, you know, if, if I was working for, and they named a very big industrial firm, multinational, I'd be on way more money. 
those people, those firms aren't being paid by teenagers getting 50 grand's worth of debt. You know, the, the, it is fundamentally different. I think we should move on from the Vice-Chancellor pay because there's a lot of other issues. But it did touch on one thing which I think is really important, and that's about universities sort of speaking with one voice. And obviously, Zena, you represent the Russell Group, which is the sort of umbrella group for, for 24 universities, mm. but there are many other universities out there. Do you think universities do a good enough job in sort of putting forward a collective argument or do they tend to sort of go for the I'm all right, Jack, blame him down the road? I think that it's I think it's less blame him down the road and more just, oh, we're not really used to having to do this. And there's more pressure uh, on universities to do that now with kind of, you know, all these issues racing around. So I think that's why groups like the Russell Group, like Universities UK and the other mission groups become really important, actually, um, from a comms point of view. I think that what would be really interesting and something I'm, kind of looking at us doing a bit more is universities also teaming up with kind of other groups in society and getting their message across you know I think business which is better at speaking with one voice also does this quite well so for example can we be saying things with the NUS can we be saying things with big business are there other people we can get on board and because I think that one thing would be really good is to surprise people a bit I do think that with some organizations like like say Russell Group institutions people, particularly journalists that I've spoken to, feel that they already know what we're going to say before we're going to say it, which I just think is amazing message discipline. But apparently, <laughs> you know, they're not interested in opening the press release. But I so do, so I do think being a bit more counterintuitive, actually, would be a really, really good thing in the next 12 months. Would that work for you, Sean? I think I think you get back to the starting point. Universities are a great thing. And we should admire what they work, they do. Russell Group is, is partly... Some people will see as a pinnacle of that. You know, you have amazing institutions with fantastic work being done and really interesting people. And so the question is, why don't you get just, you know, read in, in praise and, and adoration? Um, and to, 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 to do that, I suppose you need to start saying things which are human and occasionally vulnerable. They need to be a little bit braver in trusting the public to, to, to like them when things aren't perfect. It's a different it's a difficult balance on that as well because you have to imagine that most of these institutions, particularly kind of big ones, are also trying to present the best possible face to the outside world because they're recruiting so many international students from abroad, they're thinking about their recruitment and those kinds of things. But I do I definitely take the point and I think that a more emollient tone on some issues could be really good. I mean, one issue that hasn't come up yet is obviously access disadvantaged people, underrepresented groups getting into universities. And I think that's one of the big kind of factors in what's going on now in that I think there is frustration actually among a lot of people and particularly within political circles that not enough is happening quickly enough to open up the doors and I think you know when I kind of got to the Russell group I started digging into this and it was amazing seeing how much work is going on and finding out how much you know the vice chancellors personally deeply care about this and again I was wondering why isn't this coming across and why aren't these stories being told and I think part of it is is trusting the public to go out there and actually explain how difficult it is that if you take people on that journey and show more of yourself and be clear and actually it would put us in much better stead and i think um i think one of the, the problems that universities have is that they're considered quite elitist and distant and what sean said about i think we need to universities need to humanize um, themselves a bit more so bring the people out because there's that real feeling that they're I think for people who didn't go to university and even those who did, that universities just aren't relevant to people's lives anymore. So, yes, I think if you could put more human faces to universities and also talk more about the difference that universities make to people's lives, I think that could be really powerful. I think a lot of this um, is about 
doing things on your own steam and not being pushed. So you would have all seen last month when Oxford University published all of its admission statistics. Never done that before. Um, kind of the year previously, they'd had to publish some stuff because of very successful one-man FOI campaign by David Lammy and they, they had a really hard time for it. What they've done this year is do it under their own steam, give journalists and particularly you know, the Today programme and the BBC lots of time with that information to really dig into it and the reporting on the day when it all came out was hard but it was much more balanced than it would have been otherwise and people were much more willing to give them a hearing because they saw they were doing it off their own back. Do you, Sean, from your point of view on that particular point, that model, you know, here are the books, you know, let's have an open conversation about, does I, I that think, work think, for yes, you? Yes, I do. I think, yeah. I think people are able to have a big, rational, thoughtful conversation about these things if they feel equipped with the information. And the more honest and open we are about it, the better. I, I, I think it's an, odd, it's an odd sort of thing, but you need sometimes to show how hard the problem is to, to show how hard you're working at it. But if you sort of start off by saying, there's no problem here, go away, you know, that, that, yeah, yeah. that there's, a, there's a sort of, uh, and your, your example of Oxford is a very good one, you have to, to show people that things aren't perfect. Ultimately, universities will have to choose whether they embrace that or just carry on sort of fighting uh, on all these fronts. I think that's right. And I think that in embracing it is the right thing to do because it will allow us to have have that debate a bit more of our, on our own terms. You know, value for money is the phrase now, and you hear it from the regulator and you hear it from ministers and you hear it a lot. And um, we can then take the lead on a debate about what is the right kind of return that students should be getting? What is that broader university experience? And how can we explain it? And I think, you know, a kind of, sort of richer debate in that area would only be a good thing. From the perspective of universities trying to kind of become more business-like and maybe kind of market themselves more effectively... Two particular issues maybe haven't been reported quite as much as Chancellor Pay is this whole thing around grade inflation. I saw a stat about University of Surrey awarded 40% first-class degrees last year and also the claims around graduate recruitment are not necessarily matching up with reality. Do you think, Sean, is this an, another front on which higher education could find itself in a bit of trouble by overclaiming to try and get the bums on seats? Universities can choose how many degrees they award in various classes. And particularly since fees were introduced and fees were increased, the, the number has gone through the roof. And as you said, in Surrey, it's a, more than 40% of, of uh, degrees awarded last year were, were at first class level, which to, to people of our certainly my vintage, is, is, is sort of, it just seems bizarre uh, and counterintuitive. And you think, well, that's just stupid and that can't be right. I think there are a number of things below that that, that um, are to do with how do universities present themselves. If you were thinking about going somewhere, would you be impressed by the fact that you had a four in ten chance getting a first? You might do. You think, well, that's not bad, is it? Um, but that's that's a race to the bottom because then you know fifty, sixty, seventy percent. Um, also, at the heart of that is that thing about how much autonomy does you know, does each university have? How does it fit into a national system? Um, how are these qualifications comparable they all emanate from a time when there weren't many universities there weren't many people and it was all done by it was like a connoisseur by eye i think that's worth so and so and and that sort of worked then now it's much more complicated students also work much harder and they pay more money so they want first and two ones and there's a sort of you know if you're marking your own homework it's, it's incredibly difficult i suspect for universities not to give them because they, they have close relationships with these with the students and a lot of it's coursework rather than final exams. And you can just see how the marks ratchet up. And if everyone else is doing it, then how do you not do it? I, I don't know how you get around it. And I think probably Russell Group universities themselves probably feel that pain. Well, the thing about grade inflation 
what I ask my colleagues is why is it happening? And the truth is that nobody really knows yet. So there's this big piece of work going on that you UK are leading with others to actually get to the bottom of it. Because there's all sorts of things going on. For example, um, people are starting university with higher grades, kind of level of teaching has gone up. Think all sorts of things that could be driving it rather than grades just being artificially inflated. That, well, I think it kind of gets to the heart of something that HE struggles with a bit. Until we know what the reasons are, my colleagues don't want to go out and have kind of hard and fast lines on it. When you're dealing with the media, <laughs> you know, that's, it comes across as if you're kind of, you know, being evasive or not really giving an answer or trying to bat, bat it away. But, but the truth but is we be, just don't know. But to be cruel and horrible. <laughs> this, Surely this, not. Surely. This, this, uh, on behalf of the media being cruel and horrible, <laughs> not myself personally. This pattern has been evident for 20 years. Um, and to say we've never quite really got the chance to think mm. about what's driving it, I think is... I don't think really people that people buy that, and they think if all of us could mark our own homework and anything, and over the space of time our own marks for ourselves got better and better and better and better, you'd say I don't think that's entirely objective. But just just one response to that. I mean, for a, a group like the Russell Group, who kind of trade on their excellence, it, it's kind of self-evidently not in their long-term interest for first to be devalued and people everyone in those institutions is kind of smart enough to know that. So I think it slightly misunderstands what's what's driving those institutions and I do I, I agree with what Sean said about you know come on we really not got an answer to this yet I can imagine how that must sound to journalists but all I can say is the work does seem to be going on now and maybe that is a response to this you know the overall spotlight on universities means that maybe we are going to have answers to some of these questions that we might not have had a few years ago because the sector is starting to respond to some of the scrutiny and criticism in a slightly different way. But on the other point I mentioned i.e. graduate recruitment okay. that's pretty black and white, isn't it? How many uh, former students are in full-time employment? And there does appear to be a discrepancy between some of the claims being made by some universities and and the reality on the ground. What's your impression... Seen on, on that point, do you think? Well, I mean, for, it's difficult. Coming at it from a Russell Group perspective, obviously Russell Group universities do really well. I worry more about the idea that you judge the value of a degree on whether or not a student goes straight into work and how much they're earning in that job. A lot of people who have been shelling out £9,250 a year would consider that a very important metric. It, it completely, yeah. it's something to be considered, but the idea that that is the only thing by which we should judge a degree on. I don't. I, again, I don't think it's right, and I, 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 can, I understand why things are moving in that direction. And you know, ministers, for example, are very, very much in that space. Um, government is very much in that space, and I completely get it in response to the rise in tuition fees. I think it, if we go too far down that line, I actually think it's going to alienate students quite a lot because that's also not entirely how they see their degrees. And there is, in general, in HE at the moment, there's a bit of a battle going on for who speaks for students. Um, so you know, the minister for universities is now the Minister for Students, the Office for Students is the regulator. And I think it's really important in all of this that actually the universities, we don't allow ourselves to somehow be kind of, you know, on the other side. We should speak for the students who come through our doors, who we wish to provide with outstanding teaching and amazing university experience and help them get set up for their careers and the rest of their lives more broadly. I I wanted to focus a bit more sort of on the comms issue and specifically from your point of view, Zena, to what degree universities and higher education more broadly are sort of bypassing the traditional media where they might not always be getting the kind of hearing they, w- they would like and being able to get their message across effectively through, through other means? Well, I think like all organisations, they just have to be 
Well, we just have to be good at all media, traditional media, social media. I, I mean, people forget, actually, that for universities, you have to spend a huge amount of time on internal communication. So speaking to your staff and students. The thing where I think that we need to do more of, and actually where I, and I do, I've been asking myself, you know, is this the kind of five to ten year comms agenda, really? And that is explaining to people what we do. All of the issues we've been talking about actually up to now, most of them focus on teaching students and people tend to think of teaching 18 year olds really or young people who move away from home. That is an enormous part of what universities do. Universities like the Russell Group, who are kind of, you know, world leading and help maintain the UK's position in the global platform and all of those sorts of things. Um, Research is an enormous part of what we do as well, a kind of life-changing part. It's how we transform our societies and our communities. And I spoke to a colleague at Oxford recently who's telling me that they did some focus group work um, which touched on the kind of general perceptions of universities. Out of about 50 people, one knew that universities do research. And actually that's a really big problem for building that social consent for these institutions in the long term. And also one perceives fewer young people maybe are you know, engaging with the sort of traditional media than maybe they did when I was uh, entering university and maybe my means of finding out about the university and the value of a university education has changed and that they have different channels that they might go to to find out what, what it is they're buying. Yeah, I think that's probably right. But I mean, Sean might have a bit more. What do you think about that? Are young people engaging with traditional media anymore? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think sometimes, sometimes they do. I, th- I think also if you have a good story, ultimately it will get out there, you know, if, whether it's through old-fashioned media or new media. I think it all starts off with the, with the, the story you're telling. I, I agree that there's this lack of understanding and knowledge about what universities do. And when you think about it, there's been television programmes, documentaries about hospitals, about schools. You've got casualty and you've got educating Essex. And I think um, what we need, I believe, is some kind of mass media... Love Island for universities. Well, something that kind of demystifies <laughs> universities. When you think about the important role that a university plays in UK cities up and down the country, yet most people in those cities, if they're not part of the university, don't know much about the universities, probably think of them as very irrelevant. And I do think somehow universities have to open up their doors and educate people in, in kind of layman's English uh, about what they do and the impact they have. I just want to finish, if we can, by getting very briefly... Uh, I know this is a bit of a mugs game, but a bit of a forecast. From each of you, what's your feeling over maybe the next five to ten years? Will, will we still have the same number of universities in this country, or will some of them just be forced by reality and economics to, to close down or, or change beyond all recognition? Sean? I think, actually, there could be more rather than less. Actually, I, if it was my preference, I think there's scope for more. What they do, what people study, might be often more vocational than, than academic, but I think the higher education will expand. And I think that comes back to the big thing about how do you pay for it? And I think that, that well, there's a review going on now. That has to be resolved in a way that is satisfactory to enough people to move on so that every single conversation about universities isn't driven by a price tag, and, and which really drags down the conversation. But that is where it's at now. Hopefully that will be resolved properly. If that happens, I think there'll be a very, very, very rosy future. I think universities have a huge amount to offer, and I think if they sell, if they sell a good story, I think that they will be seen as being... Um, sources of local pride, sources of national pride, and and a sort of engine of the economy. And Zena, what about you? Where, how do you see the landscape changing in the next ten years? I mean, I I feel 
positive about it and optimistic, which is part of the reason I took the job at the Russell Group, because I think if there's any sort of set of institutions which are in a position to tell a good story about themselves, it's universities for the reasons Sean's just said. And I, you know, how that will happen and if that will happen and what form we'll wait to see. I think that I really hope that in the next 10 years, particularly if the UK is out of the EU, that universities continue to be one of our kind of great competitive advantages and a big kind of global asset. Um I think that actually to understand what's happening to universities, you need to look at the broader landscape. I think there's a lot of people out there who feel that where a lot of change is really needed in kind of technical and vocational education, that side of things. So I, I hope and I expect we could end up in a place where you have kind of, you know, a really strong university sector that people feel is affordable, that people understand as research. And also on the other side of that, we have a slightly more diverse overall offer for people after they're 18 um, and want to study in different forms. And Nicole, maybe more from a kind of communications point of view, do you think that the sort of winners of universities which will kind of prosper and succeed mm. will be the ones who tell the best story about what they're doing. Well, I agree with Zena that I think um, the huge advantage that universities have is that they're sitting on fantastic stories. It's just it's just getting universities, um, helping universities to better tell those stories and having the confidence to talk about the fantastic work they do against the barrage of ne- negative headlines that are going to come their way. Yeah, coming up with people-related human interest stories and making universities relevant to people's lives. Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, Sean, on that note, you you know what you've got to do. You've got to go away and write lots of lovely things about universities and not write anything about Vice-Chancellor Pay anymore. In your dreams. (laughs) So on that note, I'm going to bring this discussion to a close, pausing briefly to thank my guests, Sean Coughlin, Zena Elmaruki and Nicole Martin. If you have enjoyed this, please rate and subscribe to One Message for iTunes and follow us on Twitter at MHPC for news of our upcoming events. On Message is written and produced by MHP Communications and Mixonics Audio Production. You can find out more on our website, mhpc.com. And you can find us on Twitter, at MHPC.